Earlier in my Christian life, I spent um, a total of 32 consecutive years working at Forest Home Christian Conference Center. Has anybody ever heard of Forest Home? And uh, I had a title uh, that I was given when I was there, and my title was Father Nature, and uh, which is, was kind of odd. And my wife wasn't altogether thrilled to be occasionally called Mother Nature, and. Uh, <laughs> But uh, it came to be an affectionate kind of a term after that many years and be identified with something um, as special as uh, God's creation. At any rate, um, did you know the Bible says that God himself says, my animals, they honor me? Have you ever heard that verse before? And, And they honor him in so many ways through their beauty and through their examples. Did you know that um, uh, the divorce rate of, of uh, Canadian geese is about uh, 4%. In, <laughs> in the United States, it's closer to 50%. There's lots of arguments about this. And, and the reason that, it, that I would be arguing about it is that I spend my life helping people who have been through divorces or are going through divorces or separations and are in that uh, that area of problem in their life, and it's a really under um, underappreciated problem. Um, did you know the Bible says true Christianity and undefiled, that means pure, undefiled, is this, to visit the widows and the sick in their affliction. Everybody, a lot of people know that verse, but what, what a lot of people don't know is what the word widow even means. Um, The word widow means a woman not under the care of a man. It isn't just a woman whose husband has passed and she's got the load on her shoulders and it's a tough journey. And there really is no human experience that is more painful than to be a widow under those circumstances. But widows are also uh, single parents whose husbands um, perhaps ran off with... uh, a young secretary at his office, or, uh, well, my dad used to say, there's no fool like an old fool. And uh, there's lots of ways for people to become single parents. And there's a lot of sad stories about men who were being good fathers and uh, whose wives left them. But there's a whole world that in the world of the church of invisible people that have a kind of pain uh, and a kind of disgrace who can't they don't feel like they can hold their head up as high uh, as a lot of the people in the congregation because they've got the big brown D on their chest. As the, Do you remember the scarlet letter, the scarlet A for adultery? Well, um, it ought not to be thought that way of single parents because there's so many ways that you can come to that experience. And, um, and you know what? When I first came, let me just tell you one. This, to me, is a funny story. Uh, although it led to, it's led to a wonderful ministry. Um, Chuck Swindoll noticed one day that the first four rows of the congregation, and that's that's that is a sanctuary that holds about four thousand, and the first four rows across were cov- That's where the single parents sat. And as he found out they sat there, he went down and started getting to know them and asking them questions about their stories and how they happened to become single parents and what they were going through. And he got to hear some really incredibly sad stories. And, uh, and two, the, he got to meet people who could hardly lift their eyes to look into his eyes because they saw him so godly and so victorious and thought of themselves as failures. And everybody knows that God hates divorce. I mean, that's one of those verses that people learn before they learn John 3.16. And, uh, and so they... Um, but what happens is that people never learn that God doesn't hate divorcees. He doesn't like the institution of divorce. And there's two reasons why. And it's given in the text of Micah. Uh, and it says that... Uh, he desires godly offspring, and the institution of divorce disappoints children. They pray to God to keep their parents together, and then when their parents exercise their free will and decide not to stay together, for perhaps valid reasons, um, 
then uh, at any rate, they feel ashamed that they were a part of something that fell apart, even though they didn't want it to fall apart and couldn't stop it from falling apart. And uh, then they were shamed for it. Uh, and uh, that's a terrible thing for the church to do. Uh, last time I, the last time I checked, this building has the people in this building and every other church that's meeting today on a Sunday is filled with sinners saved by grace. And I, and I don't know what your specialty is in sin. My own personal specialty is lying. Uh, <laughs> so why you choose me to come up here and speak on a Sunday is so totally beyond me. I don't know. Seems ridiculous, doesn't it? And uh, so at any rate, uh, Chuck noticed these people who were in the situation of being shamed and hurt and financially devastated and their kids were uh, hurting and wishing they had both parents and sometimes embarrassed that they're they were in a single-parent family, but he decided there should be a single-parent ministry. And so he asked his staff, he says, does anybody here know of uh, somebody that's had some experience in this line? Did you know that he had a staff, a, a, quite a large staff, a total, there was like 105 people employed, but on the major staff, about 18 of the upper shepherds or whatever you call them. And uh, nobody knew of anybody with any experience. Can you imagine that? Nobody, nobody even knew of anybody uh, that had experience helping single parents and divorced people. So he, even with investigation, they couldn't find anybody. And so he says, well, let's, he says, I want to get a ministry going, so let's find a person. And he asked his uh, senior associate pastor, Paul Salamer, he says, Paul, what quality should there be in a single parent pastor? And he says, Paul says, well, he says, I don't know. I says, he says, I think single parents feel put down and maybe they need somebody who can lift their spirits and encourage them and Chuck says okay I'm going to write that down on my list and uh, it, it was silent for like a minute neither one of them said anything for a minute they couldn't think of anything else and so Chuck says well I have an opinion he says I think that these are sad people they spend a, spend a lot of time crying and disappointed and uh, feeling unloved he says so I think that whoever comes to them should cheer them up and have a good sense of humor and uh then he turned to Paul and he says, you know anybody that would stick up for him and cheer him up? He says, I do, Paul. I got this friend named Gary Richmond. And uh, he says, he would probably take on something like this. And uh, when they asked me, the funny thing is I'd been a youth director for 22 years. And as I got to be an older youth director, I was spending more and more time with uh, kids in divorced families cheering them up and helping them make sense of of life and uh, helping them get through the disappointment of having their families break up. At any rate, that became very important to me. And when Paul came and said, would you be in the least bit interested in, in serving the divorce community at our church? And I said, I don't know. I've been praying about that lately that I, I just never thought there would be a church big enough so that they could afford a single parent pastor, that that be a specialty. He says, well, Chuck wants to get it started. If you'd be interested, you can come and interview. And so I did that for 27 years there, and I'm still doing it. So that's, you do the math. And uh, in the interview, they said that one of the, he was from Germany, Hans. He always thought of tough questions, but he says, well, how long do you think you would stay with our church? <laughs> and, uh, you know, and I wanted to give a fair answer to a fair question. I'd never done that before, but I had read... I, I mean, I'd given fair answers to fair questions, but I had never stayed with the church under these circumstances, is what I was trying to communicate and, fail, and, failed, and failed abysmally to do. But I thought I was trying to give a good answer, and I thought, well, I read the book called The Blue Knight by Joseph Wambaugh, and uh, he, in the book, has a section where they talk about cops that deal with the dirtiest forms of crime that you, you know, drug dealers and all sorts of uh, prostitutes and all of the worst of the worst. And um, uh, they have a very uh, low period of time. They can stay in it about five years and they have nervous breakdowns. They turn to alcoholism. They have all sorts of things that happens to this group because they're in the darkness all the time. And it's just hard to stay, keep their spirits up. And so... I remembered that as I was answering this question. I said, well, I'll, I'll pledge myself to five years. <laughs> Thinking, 
I'm going to be hearing sadness and sorrow. I don't know how long I can stay in the storm. I did, I did remember hearing a black spiritual once, uh, and the lyrics were, I've been in the storm too long. And I started kind of equating that to my answer, and, and uh, I said, but I'd try to stay longer, but I, I'll commit myself to five years. And Chuck said, well, that's, that's interesting, because that's what I was thinking in my mind, at least if he could try to stay here that long, then get a feel for if he could stay longer. Well, I stayed 27 there, and I'm still doing it at another church. And you know what kept me there? This might be of interest to you, is the, the uh, changes that I saw. I saw discouraged, defeated people come alive in Christ to the point where they, it, it was like Jeremiah said, God is my sufficiency. They found that God was enough to get them through. And so that was catching to me. Their joy spread to me. And then I could stay in the storm with them through all sorts of problems. They can, they can think up things to get into that uh, I never dreamed. And, uh, and so, uh, and I went right into it with them to try to help them get through it. And then I began to be Pastor Gare. And I did the weddings of their children, which got older and, and got married. And uh, it became my favorite of all my years of ministry have been my years helping single parents. And I say that just to let you know a little bit about, about who I am. But, uh, you know, in terms of, I, I never went to seminary. Say, what is he even doing here? Uh, if he'd never been to seminary. Well, the Lord said, feed my sheep. And uh, so I did have the experience at the zoo. I worked at the Los Angeles Zoo for seven years. Uh, I wrote a book called A View from the Zoo. It was a bestseller. It was award-winning. And uh, so... Uh, I, I learned something that you wouldn't have any idea, that taking care of animals and learning how to do that well is not so much different from taking care of people. And when you can learn to read the body language of animals when they're in trouble and not feeling well and doing well, it's not so different than learning the body language of people when they're not doing well. You can begin to read people, so to speak. And so I come to you as a servant of the Lord, proud to come, and I hope that I can... Uh, bring you some lessons with the animals. Did you know that it says in the book of Job, let the animals teach you and let the birds of the air uh, speak to you and let the fish of the sea tell you for who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this and in his hand is the life of every living creature. And uh, then it goes on to say, which is now my life verse, that wisdom is for the aged. And uh, so... (laughs) I just wanted to throw in a, a little plug for the old people. And uh, old people aren't as popular in churches as they used to be. I don't know if you knew that, but uh, they should be respected for their age and their wisdom. But they, they don't got the beat the same way that the young ones do. And music has become so important. And uh, I love music and I love your praise band. I love everything. There, uh, I got the same feeling today when I pulled my car into the parking space. And it's the first handicap space, this side, near the door. And, but the feeling I got when I pulled in the space was the same feeling I always got when I parked at Forest Home. And it was like, this is hallowed ground. And uh, so I knew I was coming to a place where the Lord is loved. And it felt good. I just wanted you to know that. And then everybody I met and everybody that's greeted me had such a nice and sweet spirit. So thank you for that. Thank you for that welcome. I need to get these off before I knock it down and cause a scene. Um, I had, um, I think I'll start with this one. Uh, the, uh, when you work at a zoo, certain things become favorite parts of your job. And uh, one of my favorite parts of my job was watching animals being born. I, you know, I think that's undeniably, if you've, if you've, when you go to the hospital and you see people hanging around the uh, wards where the babies have just been born and you see relatives all excited hanging around the windows and making silly sounds and trying to get uh, babies who are about blind as uh, a bat uh, uh, to uh, notice them. But at any rate, uh, I, uh, everything is amazing about birth and uh, it's such an underrated event. And, uh, <laughs> but 
it should be uh, in a zoo. It's amazing because of the scope and size and uh, the ways that animals have been designed to come into the world. Uh, I, I, for instance, loved a hippo being born. Now, that may not sound like it would be so interesting to you, but we had a mother hippo, and she, we had an expression. There's lots of little... Have you ever noticed that, like, every profession or anything, they have their own jargon or their own language with words? Well, when an animal is going to give birth, the word that zookeepers use is they're getting ready to pop, and you know, which, which visually sort of uh, is funny. And uh, so, at any rate, um, when uh, there was an interesting birth, and believe me, the birth of a giraffe is a, a very interesting birth. Um, I had never seen one, and I was privileged to work with the most respected and beloved veterinarian. Um, as it turns out, in the history of zoos, he just got the award a couple of years ago. As his life, his life was honored, and he he got the lifetime award for being the greatest zoo veterinarian ever. And I got to sit next to him in the zoo mobile and walk around and take every uh, take care of everything from kudus to uh, cobras, and uh, it it was quite an event. But he'd never seen a, a giraffe born, and so we got a phone call from the African section at the zoo. And they said, you and the doc want to come down and see a giraffe born? Well, we could hardly get out of our chairs and into the zoo mobile fast enough to get down there. And uh, there was a sense of kind of quietness and reverence as we sat on bales of hay. And there were only about seven of us. And one of the seven's name was Jack Badal. He was actually an Iraqi man, an Iraqi Christian. When you asked him, because you could tell, well, you could tell that he was of a different ethnicity than most of us, didn't know what it was just by looks. I mean, I didn't, didn't have that kind of knowledge. And still, I don't think I could tell a Persian from a, uh, well, uh, one of the other ones. <laughs> I, but uh, if, you're, if you're a Christian and you uh, were from Persia, you know, you, if you, you wouldn't be any rate, you're a Persian. If, if somebody identifies themselves as Persian, they're Christian. And uh, what's the part of the world I'm trying to think of? Iran. If they're Iranian and uh, they say I'm a Persian, that means that they're a Christian. And uh, there's a, another name for an Iraqi uh, that happens to be a Christian. At any rate, that part of the world. But Jack Badal was our most respected keeper and he could think what the animals were thinking. He was so good at what he did, and um, he made it a way of life. There wasn't a college. There was no place to go to learn the things he knew. But he, for just the joy of seeing it one more time, walked from his section to the giraffe section just to see one more birth of a giraffe. So he was sitting on a bale of hay, and he was my friend, and he, he knew I was a Christian. And so I said, hey, Jack, hey, Gear." And I said, how's it going? It's going fine. He had a little piece of alfalfa hay he always had in his mouth and that he kind of just chewed on. And uh, so she was standing up, but the baby's head was coming out the back of the mother giraffe. And she was standing up, and her hindquarters were 10 feet above the ground. That's about the, the uh, height of a basketball rim, if you want to know about how high that is. And uh, I had never seen a giraffe birth before, so I... I leaned over to him I says Jack when's she gonna lay down and he just looked over at me like I was the village idiot that even by coming to the event that I was depriving a village of an idiot and so so uh, he says uh, he says they give birth standing up here I says get out of here I said give birth standing up that she's that baby's head is 10 feet above the ground. And uh, I says, don't you think we should get like a fire net and uh, catch the baby before it hits the ground? He says, Gary, he says, uh, this is the way. And he, he wasn't afraid to tell me the way it was because he was a Christian too. And he says, Gary, this is the way God has designed it. The baby falls to the ground. He says, first of all, its neck hangs for a long time and amniotic fluid seeps down the uh, canal for breathing and, and uh, it clears the lungs and every time she has a contraction uh, it 
squeezes a little bit more fluid out and so it won't get pneumonia. He says, there's a reason for this. He says, God has a reason for everything, Gare. And uh, I'm, I'm the, I've been a youth director and a pastor and stuff, and I should know these things. And so, uh, at any rate, it, it was bothering me. And uh, I says, you sure we can't do something to help her? He says, listen, I can see this is troubling you. He says, if you would like to go in and help her, he says, I will unlock the gate and let you in. <laughs> he says, but before you go in, know this, that giraffes in the wild have been known Female giraffes have been known to kick the head off of a female lioness if it tries to jump up and get her baby. But if you want to go in, I'll let you in. <laughs> said, I, I said, I'll believe I'll just stay right here, Jack. And, uh, but it was painful. It really was painful to watch. And then finally, it was all of a sudden a, a, a squeeze. And they, giraffes, and I worked at the zoo for seven years. I never heard them make a sound. Not one sound. So people have asked me that. What does this a giraffe sound like? And I can imitate elephants and chimpanzees, a, a myriad of animals I can imitate and do it pretty good too. But I could, I'd never heard a giraffe make a sound. And so the best answer to that question is silence. <laughs> so so any rate, um, uh, it, it, didn't, it wasn't making any sound. And then all of a sudden, it, it seemed like there should be a, uh, but she didn't even make an, uh, for the final push, I was picturing a, a, a giraffe midwife saying, push, uh, but there was no, no such thing. And, uh, and suddenly, I mean, it was thrust through the air. It was like a cannon shot. Uh, this baby giraffe flew through the air, hit the ground on its back with its legs splayed out like this, and still didn't make a sound and hit the ground. And I am just shocked. I'm just not believing what I'm seeing. And uh, so uh, I looked at Jack. He didn't say anything. I didn't want to betray my, any more stupidity, so I just waited. <laughs> so finally the baby rolls into a sitting position, and uh, it, its legs are tucked under, and, and uh, it's looking back and forth and beginning to focus in on the world it's come into, <laughs> albeit a hard entrance. And... Uh, so it tries to get up and falls to the right, and then it, it tries again and then falls to the left. Did you ever see Bambi in that scene where Thumper is, uh, <laughs> is talking uh, and, uh, about Bambi trying to get up, and Bambi's having a hard time getting up, and Thumper says, kind of wobbly, isn't he? And then I think the mother says, if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all, which I heard a lot from my parents. And uh, so... So at any rate, uh, the, the giraffe baby doesn't get up, and it just relaxes. And then Jack uh, whispers over in my ear. He says, if that baby doesn't get up, she's going to kick it to stimulate it. I said, kick it. Her legs weigh 300 pounds apiece. That's not good, kicking it. And uh, so he says, nevertheless, it needs to be stimulated. I said, well, I'd be stimulated. Not only would I be stimulated, I'd be calling the Giraffe Protection Agency. <laughs> And uh, for giraffe abuse. And uh, so, at any rate, it finally happened that the baby got kicked once real hard. And I mean, it was, I'm not talking just a little kick. I'm talking about rolling over and over and over in the dirt, a moist giraffe collecting mud and and bits of hay and all of that sort of thing. But the baby is stimulated and it starts trying real hard to get up and it falls down to the right. It falls down to the left. But finally, it stands up, wobbly to be sure, but it stands up and finally stands straight. Well, I wanted a standing ovation. I wanted the other people to be as excited as I was that this baby finally stood up. But no such luck. They were more experienced than I was. And Jack whispered in my ear, he says, she's going to kick it down. I said, what? All the trouble that baby went to stand up and she's going to kick it down? And he says, yep. And so... (laughs) <laughs> it didn't. It just stood there. It didn't do anything. It didn't walk or anything. So all of a sudden, her right leg went way out, and kaboom! It looked like she was going to drive it about 400 yards. And uh, so it went sliding across the dirt of the exhibit, hit the wall, and stopped. But it looked real alert. <laughs> like, what was that? <laughs> that was a big one. And uh, so... <laughs> The baby uh, got up again, and he says, she's going to kick it again. 
She kicked it again. And I says, okay, Jack. I says, I know I don't know as much as you. Explain why she's doing that to me, please. I don't get it. He says, you know, in your mind, we're here in in Los Angeles and the giraffe is protected by the cage and, and security guards and keepers and it's got all the protection in the wild. He says, but the mother has no such luxury. In her mind, she's on the veldt of Africa and there are hyenas and, and cheetahs and leopards and lions and all sorts of animals that would really enjoy a baby giraffe for whatever meal of the day it would be. And he says, so she has to strengthen it. And uh, it gets strong by getting knocked down, getting back up, getting knocked down, getting back up, getting knocked down, getting back up. Well, I had been a Christian for now several years of my life. And I had memorized, being in Youth for Christ, they had Youth for Christ quiz teams where you learned the Bible very well. And, and we studied it. And James 1, uh, 2 says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, for it produces the ability to stand strong in your faith. And I thought, right here in front of me is the uh, world of God's animals teaching me one of the great premises Uh, Did you know the Bible says we are destined for trials? That it isn't just an optional thing. God has planned for us to go through hard times so that we'll get strong. And none of us are going to be spared. We'll all go through them. Uh, There's a lot of people I know that are whiners and uh, are forever asking why. I think that's where the word whine came from. Whine, whine, whine. And And, uh, so uh, at any rate... But uh, this baby uh, didn't complain, but it did get to not only so that it could walk, but even on its first day it ran. And uh, that's a lot of growth. That's a lot of accomplishment for one baby giraffe in one day. Um, the hippo was funny. It was, I did, I'd never seen a hippo birth, and at the time I was the highest in terms of status. They had all gone to a conference. All the important people had gone to a conference, leaving me behind with uh, a multi-million dollar zoo to take care of. And then, then we get the word of hippos giving birth. That's all we need is something I know nothing about. So I get there, and the baby's coming out. I don't know what to do, but the pool is full of murky, yucky water. And I didn't, I didn't want to have that filthy, mucky water getting in the lungs of a baby hippo. So I said, open the, uh, <laughs> open the pool so that that yucky water can be drained out. And we don't want to drown the baby in its first moments of life. So they started, they, there was a water key that opened the pool, and it drained really fast. And so in no time at all, there was the mother and, and baby showing, and the baby hadn't yet come out. And uh, I, I was amazed. But then the director got there. I don't know how he got word, but he came back. And he says, who's the total jerk that uh, drained the pool? And there were like about 15 hands that pointed towards me. I says, I didn't want it to drown. He says, drown, they give birth underwater. And I said, why? He says, well, I don't know altogether if I can answer that question accurately. It's just the way it happens. He says, and it needs to happen. He says, it, 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 believe me, keep watching and you'll, you'll see that it knows what to do. Well, that baby hippo came whooshing out in the midst of bloody amniotic fluid and, and it swam all around at the end of a 30-foot umbilical cord. Talk about an Audi. Uh, <laughs> huge. And, uh, and so it, then it, it swam to its mother's big mouth, maw, they call it, and the baby then swam on top and positioned itself so it could say, Hi, Mom. And the mother, look, you could see her eyes investigating the baby. And then she let her head down in the water gently, and the baby swam underneath her and began to nurse. And as the mother turned, she uh, caught the umbilical cord and bit it in two. And so she cut the cord when she knew her baby was well enough to negotiate the world. I was in on the birth of a, an, a, uh, of a snow leopard, an Asian snow leopard, one of the most beautiful animals in the world, softest fur for sure. And um, it, it was, I don't know, it was a miracle. And to squeeze it, hold it upside down and squeeze it and stimulate it and then hear the first mewings of life in, in a, such a rare animal, you know, born high in the Himalayas, 
under the harshest of conditions and then to be a part of that, you know, those are amazing things. And uh, so at um, any rate, you, you start seeing a kingdom. And this, when I was young, and by, and by the time I was eight years old, I had checked out every book at the Altadena Public Library on animals. And so I was relatively knowledgeable at my age when I got to the zoo at 23. I was knowledgeable on animals, but of course your, your learning curve starts going way up when you're talking every day to people who are caring for these animals. And uh, to, to feel them, to uh, watch them grow, to see them do the things they do is a, was to me a constant uh, building of my faith. To me, God was an amazing creator, and this was his creation. And every one of those creatures that was being born at the zoo had been born with a purpose to fulfill on the earth as we are. And uh, to, to have the experience of working with them was just amazing. I try to remember that when you go through hard times, you're not so much different than the baby giraffe and that it, it, that it produces the ability to stand strong in your faith if you go through the hard time. Try not to be a whiner. I want to talk about my favorite personal animal at the L.A. Zoo that's there now. I've been away from the zoo quite a few years, but I kept going uh, so that I was going to the zoo probably once every two weeks, and then my hobby became wildlife photography. And I, you get to have favorite animals that you, want to, that you get to know almost as friends. And she took an interest in me, and it's called meaningful eye contact. When she looked at me, I could tell she was recognizing me, and, and then, of course, she knew I was recognizing her. Her name's Evelyn. She's a gorilla. And let me tell you a little bit about Evelyn and my first meetings with her. Uh, she, um, she had a best friend named Betsy, two female gorillas, and uh, in the gorilla family, the males... Um, have favorite females. They don't spend too much time with them, and there's not much uh, uh, romance or uh, affection and that sort of thing between them. Uh, but the girls, the ladies, are, are real steel magnolias. They, they take care of each other. And uh, they really do emotionally support and in, in every way show affection to each other, and not in any inappropriate way, but just they pat each other on the back. They comfort, uh, that sort of thing. At any rate, this is Evelyn. And um, I happened to be there at the day she gave birth to her baby. And it was so cute because even at the, when they're born, uh, the baby gorilla, she takes it by its little hand. And the hand's only about that big. And she takes it by the hand and throws it up on her back. The baby immediately grabs onto hair on her mother's back and it can then walk around the exhibit with the mother. And when the mother wants to get it again, she just reaches it and pulls it off. But then she holds it in the cr she cradles it in her arms and then rocks back and forth. Just like you've probably seen a human mother cradle its baby and rock it back and forth. She pats it on the back to comfort and help it burp and uh, release gas. And uh, she, she does something as it grows older that cracks me up, and that is she tickles it. She lifts her little gorilla baby arm and tickles it under the arm. Now, they do make sounds. And a baby gorilla goes, oh, 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 And it just, it is hysterical. There are keepers that would walk halfway across the zoo to sit and watch the mother gorilla tickling her babies. Just it makes you crack up. You cannot help yourself. Have you ever seen films of babies laughing? Is it impossible not to laugh with them? It's just, it's just something that sort of, well, that humans at least identify with. I don't know how many animals uh, like to watch other animals laugh, but there's a lot of animals that do laugh, including dogs. And uh, so there's a lot of emotion and uh, personality going on. Now, she, I watched as the weeks went by, and I was going there every two weeks, I could see this, uh, this development of the baby uh, happening very quickly as it got stronger and stronger, and it could do more and more. But did you know that a mother gorilla doesn't lose contact with its baby for the first 90 days of life? And uh, does that seem like a long time not to be able to get away from your baby? <laughs> I wasn't the best of dads, I think, as far as holding the babies and stuff. I always thought that was my wife's specialty. And uh, I, I, I became a terrific father when they could throw a baseball. And, uh, and so... But before that, my wife gets all of the Oscars and Emmys and 
all of that sort of thing. But Evelyn was the perfect mom, and she didn't want to let it loose. But finally, the baby wanted to be off on its own and go be with the other baby gorillas, and uh, she did. And then the other baby gorillas had been born. She was a, a late she was late in the season for being born, so she was smaller and uh, not up to playing with the rough, uh, older baby gorillas. And they'd knock her up and down, and finally she'd go screaming across the exhibit to get to her mother and throw herself into her mother's arms, and then Evelyn would look insulted and pat her baby on the back and glare at the other uh, young gorillas. Why did you do this, you filthy, dirty, hairy beasts? And... Uh, <laughs> You leave my baby alone. At any rate, it was a, it was a thing to behold, uh, the, the gentle, loving, affectionate care of a mother gorilla. They just are great moms. And, uh, but there's a, there's a reality. Part, part of what's hard to work at a zoo is not what you think it was. I got used to captivity uh, and the idea that animals could be held captive as long as they've got... There's never any droughts for animals. There's never any uh, times when they don't have enough to eat. If they do get sick, they have... Did you know that about every specialist in the city of, of uh, La, county of Los Angeles at, down through Orange County is signed up to do specialty surgery that people are waiting for years to get? Will come, they'll come to the zoo and do it for animals for nothing? I mean, they have the best animal care of any living things in the county of Los Angeles and San Diego and Orange. And, uh, it's amazing how much care they get. And uh, so they, they're well cared for, but there's a few things. I don't like to see eagles in captivity. They love to, uh, captivity. They love to fly too much. And a lot, so many times I saw them lift their wings and look at the top of the cage, knowing if a couple of beats and they'd hit the top of the cage and it would be a bad day. And uh, so, you know, there were some animals I didn't think should be kept in captivity, and animals you wouldn't know the name of if I... If I told you their metabolism is so high and their instincts tell them that they have to be on the hunt all the time, so they're, they're moving and scratching and trying to dig under things constantly, but they're never happy or satisfied because they think they're going to be starving to death if they don't get something to eat quick. So that part of captivity I didn't like. But the average animal, did you know that a lion sleeps 67% of its life away? And so, you know, that's a lot of time to be sleeping. And um, it doesn't, a lion just needs as much space as it needs to have enough food to eat. And they're lazy. They're lazy animals. Well, your cat at home is lazy. If you start timing your cat at home and how much it sleeps and everything, it's, they're not uh, energetic animals. They just get enough to eat and they're happy, happy creatures. So in most cases, because they can get the medical care and food and water, Animals are, and, and the predators don't get the animals at the zoo. Did you know that most animals are prey? They're not predators, they're prey. And so, and when they take the whole scope of things and the amount of love that keepers give the animals, a captivity is not such a bad place to be, with a few exceptions. But it really bugs people to see them in cages. I can tell you that because I was asked every day, how can you live with this, seeing animals in cages? Then I'd have to go through my little speech about, well, they don't have to worry about a wolf tearing them to pieces and, and uh, that sort of thing. But uh, it, at any rate, but the, here's the thing that I didn't like about gorillas being in captivity. Their, their instincts drive them to be excellent mothers. The fathers could care less. Uh, but the mothers they just live to have babies and take care of them and play with them and adore them and, and show affection. But in they, if they allow their babies to grow up, female babies to grow up, the males will mate with their daughters and then it isn't too long until you've got a genetic problem that causes confusion, will lead to medical problems and diseases and weaknesses that you can't even imagine. And uh, so that was true. And because it's true, all over the United States there's a computer base it already is prepared to say that female X at the Los Angeles Zoo, should it have a baby, will it's, and if, it, if the baby happens to be a female, it will be sent to Kansas City. And the Kansas City male will be sent to Seattle. And at any rate, it's already charted. It's, uh, it's all planned. It's, it's down pat. Now, that's all good and fine unless you're Evelyn. 
And I happened to be there the day that they took her baby. And I, uh, I had never seen it. See, this is after I left the zoo. I kept going every two weeks and photographed animals and stuff. And, and I looked at Evelyn, and um, uh, she, she, uh, she was tranquilized, and she woke up, and her baby wasn't there. She searched every inch of the gorilla moat, and no, no baby. No baby, and she searched for days. Day after day after day, she wanted to know where her baby went and why she couldn't find it. And she had a best friend, Betsy. And Betsy held her by the hand and walked with her as she searched for her baby. And together they, they wanted to know where that baby had gone to. And I got choked up watching them. And I could kind of feel in my heart what I might feel like if I lost one of my children and couldn't find it. And the desperation. Because you know they have the same emotions we do. People think I'm crazy. But you didn't work with animals like I did. And you, don't, you, didn't get, you didn't learn that they have personalities, they have emotions, they have feelings. They're sentient beings. And God made them that way. And, uh, and so it's, it's something that you can care about. How they feel. Well, at any rate, she, she went into a depression that lasted for three months. And all during that three months, she cried every day in the same place, leaning against the wall. Tears fell off of her cheeks onto the ground as she missed her baby. And every day, Betsy, her best friend, would come and lay her hand on uh, Evelyn's shoulder and then just put her other arm around uh, her head. And sometimes she would pet her and sometimes she would kiss her just to comfort her. She was comforting her best friend in the loss of her baby. Well, the day finally came when um, a, a woman with a stroller walked by. And Betsy looked at the woman in the stroller and looked at, at Evelyn, and she went, got a good idea. She grabbed uh, Evelyn by the hand and pulled her with all of her might and got her to look at a baby in a stroller. And Evelyn was fascinated. She thought, I want to see one of those. I want to hold one of those babies. Not very much hair, not too attractive, <laughs> but, but I want to see one up close. I want to hold it. I want to hug it. And uh, so any rate, she got so that she would study babies and strollers going by, and there, there was a tree that they grew in the moat, and she would hang at the end of the branches and look into the babies and the, the strollers, and, and that became her way of life. And then she started trying to figure out a way to get out of the gorilla moat, 17-foot uh, you know, reach to get out, literally, physically impossible, we thought. And uh, so she would go, and she would study the whole moat to find out what is the closest place from the ground to my, how high would I have to get in order to get out? And so she studied it and then got Betsy into it, and they figured out where the closest place to the edge of the moat was. And one day a lady came with a stroller and it, with a baby in it, and Evelyn ran and got Betsy and brought her to the spot they had decided was the ideal spot, and she sat Betsy there and held her there as if to say, stay, and she crawled up on Betsy's shoulders and then she reached down and got Betsy's hands and put it on her shoulders and then Evelyn stood on Betsy's hands and Evelyn went like this like push me up push me up and Evelyn's fingers just got over the edge of the moat and she pulled herself out now the woman with the baby in the stroller didn't know that that had happened and so she was watching the other babies play and uh, and the other gorillas and then all of a sudden, it was a Monday and there was nobody in the zoo, and all of a sudden this woman decided she'd seen enough of the gorillas playing, and she turned around to leave, and there's Evelyn patting her human baby on the forehead. Can you imagine the feeling that would go through you? <laughs> Kong! <laughs> you know, it would be terrifying. The woman just looked, there was nobody to scream to, and she just stood there, looking terrified, not knowing, not wanting to upset Evelyn, but not wanting to get her excited either. And so Evelyn is so sensitive to body language and everything, she could tell she was not being well received by the mother of the baby. And she backed up and looked in the mother's eyes, like a little confused that she wasn't welcome to hold her baby because gorillas were good about, you know, letting each other hold their babies. And, and uh, so... Evelyn finally decided it is, it's not going to happen. This isn't the day I'm going to get to hold a human baby. 
And so she thought, well, I'm out. I think I'll go see the zoo. <laughs> I promise you this is a true story. So she started walking uh, through the zoo, and, uh, and then she looked over her shoulder at the woman who's looking at, Be- uh, at Evelyn, and then go- walks back to her as- and looks at her real hard, and the woman picked up what Evelyn was trying to say. She was trying to say, would you like to see the zoo with me? It's really, I think it's pretty special, and I've heard a lot of strange sounds. And uh, so this woman got it and started following an adult African lowland gorilla around the L.A. Zoo. And so they walked together, each stopping and looking at uh, the Engedi goats that David would have watched when he was with his men in Engedi. And then they watched uh, other animals together. And they were I, the thing I wish had happened in the story, but it didn't, is that uh, they got within about 60 feet of the lions. And the lions would have gone crazy if uh, they had seen a baby, or if they'd seen a, a gorilla. They'd never seen a gorilla before, and they really don't live in the same area. And it would have been an, an incident to behold. There would have been a lot of roaring. There would have been a lot of running. <laughs> Evelyn would have been scared to death of a, a lion roaring. That's a, a sound you can hear for five miles. And so at any rate, you, uh, she didn't get there because a keeper came along and saw Evelyn walking around the zoo with a, a supposedly sane woman. And, uh, so, and so the keeper says, Evelyn, what are you doing and so he he ran up to Evelyn and just reached out his hand and she reached out her hand for him because she was known to be a sweetheart and they walked hand in hand and he took her back to her moat and so the zoo guys just assumed that some nut had thrown a garden hose over the side and Evelyn had crawled out and uh, gotten into the zoo so they forgot about it except about four days later here she was out in the zoo again and This next woman wasn't nearly as delighted to have fellowship with a gorilla. (laughs) And so they thought, oh, this is somebody's doing this, and this could get dangerous. And so they, uh, you know, they use old people at the L.A. Zoo for volunteers. And uh, the old guys, you know, no no telling what they'll use them for, but the women usually are doing the teaching to small groups of children. And and, um, so at any rate, the old guys were positioned under bushes and plants and everything to watch every movement that uh, Evelyn made and uh, to see how this was happening. And they, then they, and they discovered how it was happening. Evelyn was taking Betsy around and they were looking at, at the spots to get up. But I forgot to tell you, they put an electrical shock system in so that if she, they knew she had to be going over that ledge so, but at any rate, after getting shocked a few times, uh, she didn't give up. She was very persevering, and she wanted more than life itself to hold a human baby. And so she, she finally got up, and <laughs> she tore and snapped the electrical wire. And I'm sure that Betsy's feet got a heck of a shock <laughs> on the wet cement. I mean, it just would have been a bad thing. And uh, so... At any rate, they discovered how it was happening, then they locked them up, and then they sent them across the United States to a zoo that could prevent that from happening. She was gone for five years. It gave us it, They made a whole new gorilla exhibit because of that, and, uh, but Betsy didn't come back because they knew that with Betsy and Evelyn, that was a team that could teach all of the rest of the gorillas how to get out of the gorilla mode. <laughs> so, you know, the... the if if you uh, if you want want to uh, think in terms of one anothering, and Betsy is a great example of one anothering, what are you willing to do to see that your friends, your loved ones, your family uh, gets their dreams fulfilled? Betsy seemed to be willing to do anything from comfort to escape. <laughs> she didn't know if there was any uh, sentence that she would get for helping a, an escape, a gorilla escape. But I discovered a long time ago that there's about 32 verses that are what I call the one another verses and, and named it, entitled it one anothering. How do we one another each other? What do we do for each other? And this is a great exercise that you should uh, think about doing. And that's getting in the back of your Bible. You usually have what's called a commentary or you can buy one. Cruden's commentary. Uh, not commentary, Cruden's Concordance. And um, it 
you can look up the words and then see all the verses under those words. Well, you want to hear a little bit of the list of one anothering? Yes. And this is, this is good because if you've wondered lately, is there anything I can do that would glorify God? Go through the one another verses and then do them. Listen to this list. Love one another. I'm not going to list all of the addresses to these verses. It takes too long to do them. But this is what God says about one another. Love one another. Don't pass judgment on one another. Isn't that interesting that it's in there? Be members of one another. Join up with each other. Be devoted to one another. And I think of Betsy as the most devoted friend that I know of. Honor one another. There's something nice to say about everybody. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded toward one another. Accept one another. Don't try to be a changer, you know, where you designing it took me a long time when I was young I heard this term a designing woman and uh, that did have you heard that expression before a designing woman um, that's a wife who tries to change her husband into something worth having and uh, so (laughs) so so accept one another even dumb husbands don't make lawsuits against one another That's interesting, isn't it? That's what a divorce is, by the way. It's a lawsuit. Uh, Care for one another. Serve one another in love. Don't spitefully hurt one another. Don't provoke one another or envy one another. Bear one another's burdens. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Submit to one another. Don't lie to one another. Teach and counsel one another. Abound in love toward one another. Comfort one another. Don't hate one another. Encourage one another. That means put courage into. That's what the word encourage means. Put courage into. Stir up one another to love and good works. Isn't that interesting? Inspire somebody to do something good. Don't slander one another. Don't bear grudges against one another. Confess your sins to one another. That's one of the hardest, isn't it? Pray for one another. Offer hospitality to one another. And greet one another. Have fellowship with one another. We could go farther. There's lots more of them. But uh, the book is, in case you've been wondering, is there any direction? Does God have a plan for my life? Yes. (laughs) It's called the Bible. And you can find so many one another verses and suggestions how to spend your time touching one another's lives uh, that it isn't hard to find God's will for your life. It's written all through it. It's thick. This thing is thick with things to do for other people. And then, of course, none the least of which would be to praise God and to thank God. And, uh, you know, there's just so much we can do. any rate, let the animals teach you, and, uh, and they will. Even, even your dog. It, a dog's capacity to forgive people is astounding. And that's one of the hardest things to do, so let a dog teach you. Let's pray. Lord, I... Thank you so much for this wonderful, loving church and uh, that you would bless them, continue to bless them. And uh, they obviously have great pastors that are lifting them up and bringing them close to you. So uh, we praise you this day, ask you to be with us, ask us to be helped to be better Christians. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.